0: Welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Engaging Development Finance Against Modern Slavery In this podcast, we talk to experts from the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative, Crown Agents Bank and the CDC Group. We explore the multitude of ways in which modern slavery is relevant to development finance institutions and discuss how they can engage with the topic more closely.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this Themis podcast, which we're recording as part of our research and outreach programme about modern slavery. And the UK's financial sector. Today we're going to look at the specific modern slavery risks facing development finance institutions. I'm Nadia O'Shaughnessy, Director of the Themis Think Tank and I'm delighted to be joined by three expert panellists for this podcast. With me today are Dr James Cocaine, Head of the Secretariat of the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative, otherwise known as FAST. John Sam Kabam, Senior Vice President and Money Laundering Reporting Officer at Crown Agents Bank. And last but not least, Mark Eckstein, Director of Environmental and Social Responsibility at the CDC group. James, John and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you all on the podcast and I really look forward to hearing your insights. So, as part of our research at Themis, we've been analysing the specific ways in which different types of financial institutions could be affected by modern slavery. We've looked at the linkages that retail banks, investment management firms, accountancy businesses, and others can have to forced labour. Today, we considered those institutions that undertake lending, investment, or payment operations in emerging markets specifically. So Mark, if I could start with a bit of a scene setting question for you. Why might development finance institutions, or DFIs for short, be particularly exposed to modern slavery in their investment and lending operations? What what are the risks that arise when operating in your target sectors and countries?
2: Thanks, Nadia. I mean, I think the the answer is you know we we invest in emerging markets and and the while the laws and regulations may be reasonably uh, coherent and 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 strong implementation is is often weak but i i think it's important to emphasize that i don't think dfis are any more exposed to modern slavery and trafficking risks than any other parts of the financial sector if if i'm being honest we are all Uh, Through the multiple ways in which FIs and and private equity funds invests exposed to elements of modern slavery and trafficking, I think DFIs have a mandate and an agency to explore that more vigorously, if you like, I mean we have I have a team of 23 people working with me at CDC who, who are charged with delivering an ESG mandate and 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 a part of that is understanding Labor practice and modern slavery risks. So we have a a, a big strong team that is looking at every investment we make and and where we see contextual risks around modern slavery, we will be doubling down on that. And I think one of the things that we can see uh, across our portfolio and, and in our, particularly in our financial institutions business is that it takes a lot of energy and a lot of diligence to get to the root of where modern slavery and trafficking risks lie and perhaps not directly with our investees, but in their supply chains, in the financing uh, that our uh, financial sector clients provide. Um, and I think what we do is we, where we see that increased chance and likelihood of, of, of modern slavery and trafficking risks, we, we do enhanced due diligence of that uh, um, when, we're, when we're looking at um, uh, new prospects. And then, perhaps as importantly, we're working with our portfolio pretty actively to ensure that uh, during our holding period or our investment period, we are helping them understand and navigate the complexities of supply chains, which may have greater or lesser uh, likelihoods of, of modern slavery. So, I, I think that the, the challenge in some is you know, these are systemic failings in, in emerging markets. And, and as, an in, as an investor who is uh, investing in individual companies, it's often very difficult for us to effect the, uh, the systemic change that we need to see. Because these, these problems are pervasive. They're enabled by corruption. They're enabled by weak implementation of laws. And, and that makes our investees vulnerable. Uh, and none of them want modern slavery and traffic on their books. I can assure you of that, but helping them uh, get it, uh, identify it and, and remove it from their books is, and their businesses, is is a big part of what what I think we need to focus on.
1: Thanks, Mark. And yeah, as you say, absolutely, it's a sector-wide problem. And that's what we've really tried to highlight in our research as well. Um, but it's interesting also today to, zo- to zoom in specifically on some of those systemic failings in emerging markets that heighten the risk exposure for DFI specifically. So John, it would be great to get your perspective from Crown Agents Bank as well. From what I understand, you work with governments, international development organisations and banks to distribute payments. So what are the modern slavery vulnerabilities linked to this form of cross-border provision of payments?
3: Um, so thanks for the for the invite and, and thanks for the question so I, i'd say um the first thing i'd say is we we need to recognize that modern slavery comes in various forms and i think oftentimes when people talk about modern slavery it's not quite clear to an audience what specifically they mean by modern slavery and what it is they're talking about uh, and so let's let's be clear what, what we mean by modern slavery we're talking about uh you know, sex exploitation of, of human beings. We're talking about you know, domestic slavery, uh, labor camps. Uh, we, we've seen exploitation in construction. Uh, in the UK, certainly, we've seen exploitation in car washes, in shops, in manufacturing, and, and in the agricultural sector, where people aren't paid um, a minimum wage um, and, and feel very vulnerable. Um, and, and so I guess the, the question one asks oneself is, if this is prevalent in uh, the UK in a developed um, economy with uh, strong standards, uh, governance, um, and a judiciary which um, which punishes um, you know severely uh, any derogations from law. Now, imagine what you know the the, the situation would be in in less uh, developed countries in, in which you know uh, we operate so what i'd say is as as an organization what crown agents uh, seeks to do is a number of things so first of all you know vendor risk management process is making sure that any vendors any partners we do business with um, in uh, a lot of the emerging and frontier markets in which we operate uh, have standards and have policies and a mission to fight uh, against modern slavery we carry out detailed risk assessments and due diligence on every single partner we do business with but also uh, due diligence on the countries in which we, we, we provide our services. And, and I'll give you some detail uh, around what we do in that space. Um, we ensure that we have uh, worldwide terms and conditions. So where we're entering into contractual agreements with, with parties, we uh, build in clauses into those contracts um, to uh, en- ensure that uh, parties uh, to contracts are fulfilling uh, any obligations which uh, apply, um, and then of course there is an ongoing monitoring, uh, which is important because it's it's not a point in time exercise. It has to be an ongoing uh, obligation, uh, and then training and awareness. And and on training and awareness, it's it's training our staff, uh, training our people who. Uh, tend to travel quite a lot. Uh, there's been less travel as a result, the result of, of COVID, but, but quite a lot of, of training of our people, but also training of our clients. Because one of the challenges I think, uh, and I'm sure Mark and, and James would recognize this, it, with, with modern slavery is that it is not sometimes the uh, the behaviors, the actions which we term modern slavery, are not necessarily recognized in some of these countries in which we operate as a problem. So that's that's something which needs to be uh, addressed as well. Um, So when we think about the the countries and the regions in which we operate, so across the Caribbean, uh, across Asia, and and in Africa. So Africa, it is estimated that something like 9.2 million people, uh, that's men, women, and children, live in some form of of modern slavery. And, And Africa has the highest prevalence, so obviously, Uh, doing business in Africa exposes us to to a significant amount of risk. Um, When we look across the African region, uh, there are a number of reasons, but but one of the primary reasons we see that drives this is is the the fact that uh, there are a lot of conflict zones. If you think about Libya, for instance, where there isn't a lot of data that that we know as a result of the conflict, um, there are many people who are potentially trafficked. Uh, and living um, in in modern slavery across South Sudan, um, parts of Nigeria uh, and so on. So so what we do is we we have a a country risk framework um, which seeks to identify countries where we have uh, significant vulnerabilities. Um, At the top of the framework, so the highest risk countries, uh, there are two categories. The first one is what we call uh, prohibited uh, countries and in, in countries which we we countries which we um, we classify as prohibited, we won't do any business in in, in those countries at all. No services provided um, to any parties, uh, not commercial banks, not government entities um, in those countries. Um, one step down from that is what we call um, restricted countries and and territories. And in restricted countries and territories, we provide certain limited services, primarily to international development organizations. So we see ourselves as part of the solution. um, And and, and we work with a significant number of international development organizations that provide uh, aid and finance to support programs in in some of these these, uh, problem countries. So I guess, but but, but in those countries, we would not provide any services to commercial banks, um, mainly because our sense is that despite um, controls that commercial banks may may build, the the level of uh, insecurity, the level and the extent to which certain states uh, tend to be uh, failed states um, means that there isn't really an ability for the government to implement and enforce standards which protect um, the vulnerable. And in such circumstances, our concern is that dealing with commercial banks exposes ourselves to um, the evils of, of modern slavery.
1: Thanks, John. That's great. And um, I think you really nicely highlighted there the, the legislative and regulatory differences between different markets, as well as, you know, what the key components of a financial crime risk and controls framework need to be when geared towards modern slavery concerns. Um, So really interesting and thanks a lot. So turning now to you, James, you recently authored um, the fascinating Developing Freedom Report, which explores both what development actors are currently doing and what they could be doing to address their direct and indirect links to modern slavery. I wonder if you could talk about a few of the report's key findings and which of these are particularly relevant to a DFI audience.
4: Thanks, Nadia, and thanks so much to you and Themis for the great invitation to be part of this terrific podcast series. It's great to be with you and Mark and John today. This work that you've just mentioned, Developing Freedom, grew out of uh, a systemic approach that we were taking at UN University Center for Policy Research, which which I was working with uh, during the, the relevant period. And the question we were asking ourselves there was, how do we achieve systemic change? How do we tackle not just the the, uh, symptoms of modern slavery, but the underlying drivers and causes? Because often modern slavery is a system, it's stable. It emerges out of the intersection of institutional weakness, as Mark mentioned earlier, vulnerable populations, And then stable exploiter strategies. And those exploiters may be organized criminal uh, entities or they may be business uh, driving risk right down to the end of long supply chains and value chains and benefiting from the intersection of institutional weakness and vulnerable populations. And for the reasons that Mark and, and John just mentioned, it's often in emerging markets that we see weaker institutions and vulnerable populations intersecting. But it doesn't have to be. We also know that in certain sectors, for example, in the garment sector, in the Midlands, in the UK, there are very vulnerable populations and there's a very strong set of laws on the books, but not necessarily entirely effectively enforced. And that intersection can create this kind of system. So one way we approached this uh, system question at uh, UN University was to think about the role of finance broadly as a lever to move markets, to change business practice. But this particular work, Developing Freedom, was really focusing on the role of the development sector in particular. And in a sense, I think we've, we looked through the other end of the telescope. We weren't asking, what are the risks to the development sector posed by modern slavery? But rather, if we tackle modern slavery, what benefits does it have for development? And we found that of the 169 uh, Sustainable Development Goal targets, at least uh, two-thirds will be contributed to by work on mo- modern slavery. Uh, the central thread running through all of this was the idea that modern slavery seen from a development perspective is really about one person denying another person, their economic agency, certainly yes, their political agency, their social agency, but in a in a quite narrow sense, their economic agency, their ability to control, their own labor and how that gets used, but also their ability to control uh, consumption, saving or investment of the funds that flow from that labor. We know that often today, people in modern slavery are paid a wage, but how they spend that wage, what they do with that wage can be extremely constrained. They may be in a very isolated environment and forced to buy uh, living goods from the company store on the plantation where they work. And those are usually hugely inflated prices and used to keep them in debt bondage, for example. So that's just a small example. But the empirical reality for 40 million people around the world is that they don't actually necessarily control their economic agency in the way that our economic and development economic theories assume individuals do. So we pulled that thread. And what we found was when you pull that thread and you look at the knock-on, the spillover ripple effects through the economy of allowing 40 million people's agency to be controlled by someone else, you actually find macroeconomic results. You find 10 different drags on development that results uh, from from that uh, denial of agency. Everything from reduced productivity to uh, environmental harms, to intergenerational inequality, to intergenerational poverty, corruption, reductions in innovation. There are 10 different vectors, 10 different drags that slavery places on development. And we looked at the practice of development finance actors around the world, uh, the World Bank Group, the regional development banks, a host of bilateral uh, development finance institutions and also export credit agencies. And we identified a bit of a blind spot on this point in their their understanding and in their practice. Just 21% of the practitioners that we surveyed said that modern slavery or related forms of exploitation are seen as targets of their organization's programming. The rest see them more as risks that arise during programming and therefore must be safeguarded against. And that also flows through to capital allocation decisions by DFIs and indeed by governments. If we look, for example, at ODA and and in Developing Freedom, we studied 2 million official development assistance uh, project records. We found that on the whole, between 2000 and 2017, on aggregate, just $12 per victim was spent worldwide in ODA each year. So when you think about what that signals, it signals that this is a very, very low priority in the development sector. It's not seen as a question that goes to the heart of the development sector's goals, poverty alleviation, conflict mitigation, uh, female empowerment, economic growth. It's seen as peripheral. And what we're trying to do with this work is really call that into question and point out that if we tackle those 10 drags on development that slavery creates, we're going to unlock significant growth. IMF researchers uh, have studied this and have found that if we terminated child marriage tomorrow, we would see a 1.05% bump in GDP growth. And that's just for child marriage, just one component of the package of exploitation we know as as modern slavery. So there's a huge uh, sustainable development argument here for embedding anti-slavery goals at the heart of our development practice, including the work of development finance institutions.
1: Thanks very much, James. So clearly still a long way to go and, uh, and as you say, a very strong argument. I thought the report was hugely interesting and really important and I'd recommend it to everyone. Um, but we'll return to developing freedom later because I'd really like to showcase some of those findings a bit more. Um, but first I'd like to hear mark's perspective on some of the industry best practices um, as well as the avenues for improvement. So so Mark, I know you've worked with James on the fast initiative, you in the role of commissioner and James as head of the initiative secretariat. I also think you were involved in the good practice note um, called Managing Risks Associated with Modern Slavery, which was published by the CDC group alongside the EBRD, the IFC and DFID in 2018. So I was wondering whether there were any best practices outlined in this report or in the fast blueprint that you'd be able to share with us today, Mark.
2: DFIs are much more aware of the likelihood of encountering forms of modern slavery in their investments uh than than previously so this is this is a, a learning journey they are all on and one in which we are all uh learning every day how complicated the solutions are likely to be and i think what what I see from CDC's perspective is our ability to intervene and affect change on a transaction level, which doesn't really get to the bigger picture story that James is, is, is describing in terms of the systemic challenges and the economic agency issues, which I think are, are, are really important, but are not easy for an organization like CDC to to respond to, because we we invest in private sector companies. So our starting point is an individual company or financial institution, and we can make a difference there. So I think, I think having DFIs see this as a systemic challenge and having them apply a consistent set of tools and approaches to it, whether it's through business integrity or through the ESG human rights lens, and working in partnership both with our DFI peers but also NGOs and other actors uh, who who share our interest in addressing modern slavery are all important sort of uh, modes of affecting change at scale. And I think that's what we're challenged with at the moment that we can all see this is omnipresent in our markets. We all know it's across our agribusiness portfolios. We know it's probably attached to photovoltaic cells that we're acquiring for our renewable energy commitments. What we can do individually is one thing. What we can do as a group of DFIs and more broadly development finance institutions, including the multilaterals is, is I think a much more important challenge that we haven't fully uh, got our hands around. And I think uh, James's report and, and the work of the fast or well, the Lichtenstein initiative and the, and the fast program are are ways in which we're beginning to try and articulate a, uh, the urgency and the the models and tools that we can use and I think that's really important And uh, as as we try to draw in other actors so that we are e- affecting change at scale and I think one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in doing and very pleased to see at CDC is the collaboration now with our big business integrity team who are charged with the same roles that, that John has in crown agents looking at you know where where is the intersection of money laundering particularly in the finance sector and and my interests around human rights and modern slavery and how do we we tell a bigger story and have a bigger impact with our financial institution partners around that
4: Mark if I can jump in I remember during the fast uh, commission that you asked a series of really pointed questions uh, that really helped i think bring the commission to an understanding of the ways that even investments in individual companies can begin to achieve that systemic change. You were talking, if I recall correctly, and it's a couple of years ago now, so I may not, but I think you were talking about the exposure of DFIs to investments in other financial institutions in emerging markets and the ways that you could simply by asking the right questions about whether those uh, investee financial institutions were asking the right questions themselves internally about human trafficking risks in their anti-money laundering systems, that that begins to change the business practice. That that's how we begin slowly to see that that cultural change. Is is that how you understand, Mark, the the relationship between those individual investments and? Say your both this goal to achieve systemic change, but maybe also broader portfolio risk. If I can bring it back to that kind of uh, more uh, financial analytical level.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, I, yes, I think that's a, that's a that's a fair point and a good a good recollection of a conversation from two years ago, James. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think the the issue is one sometimes of capacity. It's not that our partners uh, are supportive of these practices and and obviously none of them want to enable it, but it is a question of their, these institutions, and I'm talking particularly about financial institutions here, their capacity to integrate new approaches and new thinking around risk and their appetite to take that to scale in institutions that are struggling with all sorts of other um, business challenges and operational challenges and commercial challenges and all of the other things that you know keep their chief risk officers and their senior management awake at night modern slavery and human trafficking is is another element that we're asking them to consider now I think if you if you in our diligence and portfolio imagine if we if we are very clear about the scale and urgency of that challenge. I, I've yet to meet a chief risk officer or other people in those sort of roles in the institutions I work with who doesn't, you know, see the urgency and want to do something about it. It's a question of providing the guidance, the tools, the ease of access to data, um, particularly in our markets, which I think, as, as John said earlier, you know, you don't necessarily have lots of data to pull to hand. You you are leveraging different sources of information across the civil society community, across other other databases. And, and putting that into a, a package that people can work with in busy institutions is part of what we need to be able to do. So I think that the place to, you know, your, your, your developing uh, freedom report, James, is that, you know, you're, you're positioning that as an economic imperative. And I think when you start positioning it like that you are going to get the attention of the regulators you're going to get the attention of, of economists in government and by extension into the economists and others in the institutions that we're backing so we're building a constituency of like-minded people hopefully
1: mm, fully agreed so it's about a bit of a mindset change and also a, a marriage of competing priorities and and just putting one slavery more firmly on the agenda with the the kind of appropriate guidance and tools. So John, this, this seems like a really great moment to bring in your perspective as as money laundering reporting officer. And we've talked a bit about the financial crime aspects of modern slavery, and if I could possibly ask you to to elaborate on this from your experience detecting suspicious activity in the bank. And you've also previously spoken to me about how hidden a crime modern slavery is, which is something we also touched upon in the discussion. So yeah, would be very interested to hear your views there.
3: Yes, <clears throat>
1: so so I think
3: um, I, I agree with that. I think it's it's a it's a hidden crime, um, and as I said earlier on, I think there is also a lack of necessarily a, a linkage between the exploitation that we see and an understanding. Of um, the fact that it is it is effectively you know the crime of modern slavery. I mean, the the, the example that I, I talked to you about previously was was one where we were seeing from a transaction monitoring perspective a number of alerts uh, as a result of payments going to um, a number of clients in in Caribbean countries, um, which which seemed to be unusual. Um, they were not necessarily sizable payments, but they're just unusual in the sense that. Um, it was on we, we hadn't seen you know dollar payments of that nature um going to those countries uh, as often as we started seeing them during the um the covid uh lockdown so we started you know querying these payments asking questions of the remitters and asking questions of our respondent institutions um And and as as we asked questions, um, a lot of answers started coming back. Uh, The main answer that was coming back was um, a lot of people are working from home. A lot of people are now working online and they're earning uh, a living online because uh, of the restrictions of COVID. So we asked the question, do you understand the type of online activity these people are doing? Are they lawyers? Are they accountants? Uh, What is it they're actually doing? Um, And we found that there was a range of online activity which was generating um, income for for uh, the clients of of our respondent institutions. Um, But we we found that the alerts we were seeing were primarily as a result of um, a significant uptick in uh, online adult activity. So uh, adult entertainment on on web webcams, uh, which clearly is an area which um, partly was outside our risk appetite, um, but also uh, we know that you know the adult uh, entertainment industry tends to be linked to trafficking, and tends to be linked to exploitation, and uh, and ultimately falls within this this category, and and it's interesting to see um, how. Um, simply building the right transaction monitoring solutions, uh, carrying out enhanced due diligence and asking questions led us to a problem which even our respondent institutions hadn't identified. And and this just gives a sense of some of the linkage between the the work we're doing um, and the the, the broader attempts um, to to limit uh, the the exploitation of, of vulnerable individuals Uh, through uh, modern slavery.
1: Thanks John and uh, really important work there on the financial crime side. But Mark, I wanted to go back to the point you made just previously about the work you at CDC Group have been doing with the Business Integrity Team because you you come at this problem from an ESG angle and I'm really interested to hear what, about the specific value that you think there is in bringing together different business functions to address modern slavery. It's more of an enterprise-wide concern.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I, it was one of the takeaway, uh, revelatory moments of of the fast, or uh, well, the Liechtenstein initiative uh, was was the realisation that there's a whole group of people working in the finance sector who had exactly the same ambitions and expectations as me but they were coming at it through an aml kyc lens and not a human rights lens and i and i went back to my business interpretive team and said well i've been working with you for you know a number of years and we've never really had a conversation about modern slavery or interestingly a bunch of other things that they focus on around illegality corruption whether it's land whether it's labor whether it's you know modern slavery Uh, you know there's a, a bunch of things where there's a very strong intersection between the business integrity expectations that we have as a, as a, as a DFI and, and the ESG ambitions we have, uh, particularly in, in our markets. And I think um, I, I'm now having a clearer understanding of where that touches down and where we can collaborate and leverage up a bigger uh, a, a bigger um, impact thesis, if you like, in the, in the presentations we make to our investment committee but also a bigger impact with our portfolio is is you know certainly an area that i, I would like to see uh build out and expand in the nearer term one of the challenges we have and and, and the, the story about your story john about you know the the sort of remittances and the or the money transfer uh um, messages that you're picking up through you know algorithms you're running in the background is 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 fascinating it doesn't play out easily necessarily in our markets where we're dealing often with relatively less sophisticated financial institutions who don't have the same online data sets and the same ability to interrogate um online transactions in the way that we see in in the uk europe and the us now and in australia of course so i think there's there are barriers to uh scale and efficiency in some of our markets that do mean we have to approach it in, a, in a, a more rudimentary way rather than running some smart algorithm in the background that says you should be watching this particular set of transactions or remittances because we just that in some markets we just don't have that sophistication
3: so just on that point which mark mark made um i think it's it's, it's a, an interesting um uh, interesting point um but what we're seeing obviously because of the nature of the um the business we do and the clients we have and the jurisdictions we do business in, one of the things we're finding is that we are actually spending quite a lot of time educating our respondents and developing our respondents as part of our risk mitigation strategy. Because if you think about it, you know, if you're part of an ecosystem, you're only as, as safe as the whole ecosystem. So it makes no sense for Crown Agents Bank to invest on resources and technology and not share its knowledge and know-how with the ecosystem. So we spend a lot of time also, um, for want of a better word, educating our respondents, educating our partners in in other jurisdictions on um, the standards we expect of them and working with them in some instances to actually build the standards that they have. And and those standards would be standards around KYC, standards around due diligence, Um, And and sometimes even technical standards, which actually help them um, build capability to uh, to address uh, some of these challenges, but but I think what we're seeing certainly in the case of human slavery, I think that the the biggest challenge is the fact that there isn't a recognition of what constitutes human slavery necessarily, and in some of these jurisdictions, they don't necessarily understand that this type of exploitation is problematic. And that takes us back to what James was saying about, you know, um, know, child labour or um, forced marriages. Um, In some some jurisdictions, uh, they don't recognise forced marriage as part of a human slavery problem.
1: That's that's really interesting, Don, and it actually brings me to a question about know to what extent do you think is a do you think a voluntary approach is sufficient, and is the pressure that um, DFIs can place on their ecosystem enough? or is there a need for some sort of mandatory legislation in said markets as well? And is that really where the impetus to comply um, is going to come from?
2: Can I, shall I have a go at that? Because I think uh, all of our investment agreements have legally binding obligations to meet uh, respectively the IFC performance standards which include very clear direction on modern slavery but also the ILO core conventions. So, you know, at at an investment level we have uh, significant, leverage via legal agreements to ensure that these practices aren't present um and and you know most of the countries that we invest in and that we all that, that john invests in as well have signed up to the ILO conventions and then ratified the convention for modern slavery so they they're legally binding expectations in those markets as well the challenge is as, as he as he has said often the definitional terms are, are uncertain there are cultural norms and behaviors that help to um, unfortunately enable these practices and and the implementation of of those regulations are often weak and inconsistent. And that's the same in the UK as it is in in all of our investment markets. Um, And you compound that by, in in our case, the complexities of understanding how modern slavery and, and, uh, and related abusive labor practices play out in complicated supply chains that may touch down in, in multiple countries. They may not even be within a single country. So what do we do when we're investing in, you know, in, I don't know, let's say um, Pakistan and the supply chains are throughout South Asia. I mean, where does our diligence, where can it begin and end? You know, there's a limit to what we can do and how far we can look, depending on the financial products and, and services that we're offering. Um, And then I think there's also a time bound consequence to this that we know that modern slavery is particularly evident in in the construction phase of infrastructure projects. That's a discrete period of of an investment for us. And we have to double down and and make sure we're looking at that risk as hard as we can. But these are fast moving project finance investments where you have multiple layers of EPC contractor and third party contractors um, often recruiting locally. Uh, and it is extremely difficult for anybody to have a total oversight of all of the, of the cogs in that, that particular machine, if you like.
1: Definitely. Um, and so, so, James, I wanted to ask, given some of these challenges that Mark has just outlined, so we have definitional challenges, um, issues surrounding the extensiveness of supply chains, difficulties of oversight in fast-moving projects... I wanted to link some of these challenges back to the Developing Freedom Report and, um, and in light of them, you know, how, how easy is it going to be to make modern slavery more of an explicit economic or industrial policy goal? And what, what do you think is needed um, for organisations to really approach modern slavery in a more progressive and holistic manner?
4: Great question, Nadia. Uh, I think at one level, it's actually easier now than it was a year ago. And that's because unexpectedly, and in some ways tragically, the pandemic has revealed to people how interdependent we all are and how the health of our supply chains and indeed our economies depends on the resilience of their workforces. And the benefits of a more people-centered development developmental mo- model so i think the argument is actually an easier one to make now that what we're really talking about is uh ensuring that even in times of stress great stress and crisis people have control over their own economic destiny that they control their economic agency but shifting the global economy to really center that proposition at every level from our capital allocation choices of DFIs and uh, international financial institutions down to the operational level of uh, of banks and indeed other businesses, that's that's quite a challenge in a way. And what what that involves is a pretty small but profound step. It's about shifting our systems within organizations and at the market regulation level from a focus on risk to business to a focus on risk to people. That sounds like a small change, but it's really when you embed that at every level of the business process, it's really profound. It's got implications for onboarding, for screening, uh, for investment screening, for customer due diligence. Um, We see that A big emphasis on that in the shift towards human rights due diligence in our various markets now. It's got implications for how you construct the deals that you make. So what is it that you're actually requiring of your counterparty in order to get to a negotiated deal? You might now be asking them to change the way they manage their supply chain in order to center that risk to people question. You might be asking them to make sure that there are relevant grievance mechanisms, effective grievance mechanisms in place. It's got implications for how we think about portfolio balancing and indeed systemic risk, risk at the market level and how we monitor for that and make sure it's not actually pushing people into situations of vulnerability. And to come back to something that was mentioned earlier, I think it's also got very profound implications for de-risking, for divestment, for exclusion. Because if the question is not, should I de-risk because this particular investment or this particular business relationship is a risk to me, but rather should I de-risk because it's a risk, it's gonna create increased risks to the person, that's, that's flipping the logic almost on its head. We will see some cases where from the perspective of risk to the business, the answer is yes, de-risk as soon as possible, but that will actually place, for example, workers who are suddenly out of a job at greater risk of modern slavery and therefore we reach almost the opposite conclusion. So how we manage that kind of situation, that's going to be a really important indicator of whether we are in fact taking this small but profound step in, in how, we, uh, how we exercise our uh, economic power and our economic leverage. And I think our recovery from the pandemic is a, the perfect testing ground for that that shift.
2: James, can I, I just sort of follow up on that um, with with a sort of observation and, and a question to you? So mm-hmm. uh, I think we, we certainly recognise that COVID has created more vulnerability, uh, particularly in the most vulnerable workforces that we touch and Mm -hmm. and that does increase the risk of modern slavery and other abusive labor practices Um, and i think part of the sort of build back better mindset that we're we're talking about and and many other institutions and and agencies are talking about is how do we make the just transition and the the sort of response to covid uh, fairer to workers the same time as one of the things that we see is a move to platform economies, platform employment, the gig economy being one of the responses that companies are going to move towards. And that increases vulnerability because you have less less oversight, less control, less influence, less agency as an investor or as a company in what's happening in those much more complicated and fragmented um, value chains. Now, I think there are tools around worker worker voice uh itc type responses that give workers greater agency if they are employed but i i wonder what your thoughts are on whether the the report looked at that move to a gig economy and what the implications might be around uh addressing that dimension of, of risk in in employment
4: yeah mark i think your your question in 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 a sense has the kernel of the answer in itself, which is that this isn't just a question of, of access to work. It's it's a question of decent work. And back to this point, we all keep stressing institutions, right? The challenge with the gig economy is the weakness from the worker's perspective of the institutional protections provided by the platform. So it's, a, it's a, on its face, uh, it, is, it increases economic agency. It gives you, you the flexibility to work whenever you want. You just, all you need is access to your own vehicle. You can log in and out of the app to be an Uber driver whenever you want, not to pick on one particular platform. Uh, but that, that's attractive from the perspective of economic freedom. But what I think the pandemic has revealed to us all is that that freedom from that negative liberty doesn't mean a lot if you don't have the freedom to, if you don't have the fundamental control over your own basic needs and agency in order to be able to actually live your life in a meaningful way. So these these things obviously go together and the institutional arrangements are really key there. And what what we argue in developing freedom is that a key part of this agenda for development institutions going forward has to be to find new approaches, new development pathways for emerging economies that get the benefits of growth that come from engagement with the international markets and now from new technologies, but also uh, ensure that they are working to the benefits of, of communities. So, for example, we are closely related to the gig economy, we're going to see a wave of robotization of Uh, uh, low-skill, labour-intensive work in in the near future. And some economies, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa are particularly vulnerable to this. So we need to think about new models to make sure that benefits uh, the people in those economies. One example here that some think tanks have touted is actually giving people equity in the robots. Just as we used home ownership in the 20th century as a driver of economic growth and lifting people out of lower uh, lower income situations into middle income security. So we might think about equity in other forms of valuable assets like robots as a a new driver. It sounds sounds perhaps rather creative. It is rather creative. We're going to need to be creative in our models to think about how we we harness these platforms to deliver agency in a meaningful way.
1: And that's really interesting, James, and highlights kind of what a moving issue this is. So affected really on a a daily basis by broader developments. We've spoken about COVID. We've spoken about working from home. We've spoken about the gig economy, automation, very much um, new developments that are changing the landscape in terms of modern slavery and the risks that institutions face. But I, I wanted to on this note, to kind of touch upon a slightly more heartening recent trend that we're seeing, and that is the growth in mandatory human rights due diligence legislation. Um, so do you think that this is likely to add real impetus to the detection and disruption of modern slavery in the companies that DFIs lend to invest in or pr- procure services from? I'm happy
4: to take a, a early stab at that. I mean, I think my view is yes, absolutely. Uh, even in a jurisdiction uh, like Australia, where we don't have mandatory human rights due diligence, but we do now have mandatory modern slavery risk disclosure for companies over a certain uh, operating revenue threshold. uh, We see the trickle, the the knock-on effects through their supply chains uh, coming very, very quickly now. And the government here in Australia has been quite explicit that these reporting expectations apply to financial institutions. So we see, for example, now groups of investors emerging using their collective leverage to focus in on specific named companies and ask them to take steps to identify, disclose, and address modern slavery risks in their uh, supply chains. And that, of course, quickly trickles down below the reporting threshold. So even though it's only the larger firms that are required to report, the smaller firms are being asked by the larger firms to identify the modern slavery risks. And that has a really important uh, uh, signaling effect and begins to change market expectations and norms. I think mandatory human rights due diligence that's now being countenanced by the EU Commission and the debates going on in various jurisdictions in Europe, in Germany, in Switzerland, Uh, in some of the northern European countries are going to fundamentally change expectations on business, not only in Europe, but potentially for any business operating in the common market. And that will have enormous implications in, uh, in North America, for example. Now, we don't know exactly how the Biden administration is going to approach this issue. There are a lot of signs that the SEC is going to move at least on the environmental aspect of the ESG agenda, and I'd be surprised if they don't broaden that out to sustainability more broadly and have a labor standards component in there. It's very clear they're going to bring labor standards into the trade debate. Uh, so one way or another, I think you'll see these different efforts reinforcing each other and a new approach that centers these questions of risks to people and sustainability, uh, much more clearly than we've seen to this point.
1: Thanks, James. And, and that um, broader international conversation is also a really interesting one and actually leads me to my next question. And this is really about working multilaterally with other partners. So as we know, development finance originates from all over the world and many governments and funds support projects in developing countries, but not all of them share your attitudes and practices when it comes to modern saving. So so my question is, how do you work with partners who take a potentially different view to these issues?
3: So I guess um, we we, we take an approach, which I guess it's, it's, there's a point which James made about de-risking um it's it's really simple in terms of um the the approach that a commercial bank which is what we are ultimately will take where we are doing business with partners that have a different view um, we basically de-risk and to the point james made earlier on the the impact of de-risking is that it protects us as a, as an institution um but unfortunately may not protect uh, the the parties that you know the the regulation or the the, the purpose of the um the obligations are, are meant to protect. Um, but but the reality that's just the reality of, um, of of doing business today um where parties are unable or unwilling to meet the uh, stringent criteria um, obligations conditions we impose, um, the, the only solution we currently have is um is, is withdrawal and and the and risking from, from those um those policies. Um just
2: a, a couple of observations from my side as well, um building a little bit on what John John was saying. Um I mean I think most DFIs have shareholders who are government agencies of one sort or another we have fcdo as our shareholder and they obviously have a very strong interest in 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 modern slavery and we're behind the report that james has been talking to so at one level we we have a shareholder who has uh political sway and influence that we can't um uh enable uh acting in concert with us uh, as we look at transactions so ultimately there, there there must be a more joined up conversation that we should be looking to engineer with our shareholder a, a, and you know other, other multilateral institutions that, that our shareholder has ex- expectations and interests in as well so I think there's a there's a sort of partnership model that gets uh, to scale and different points of leverage that you know individual institutions can't can't deliver and I think that that sort of uh, collaboration across either groups of lenders and investors or companies, institutions that are looking down specific value chains, whether they're soft commodity value chains or hard commodity value chains. I think there's there's much more ambition and opportunity for us to be more collaborative around, I don't know, cobalt. If we're looking at cobalt for whatever reason, batteries, for example. Um, Industry associations and industry initiatives around cobalt Value chains are things that investors can look at and leverage in in different ways, and I think thinking laterally about where those opportunities are and how we all become perhaps more thoughtful of the ecosystem of opportunity is is a big um, a big thing that we
4: need to focus on. Nadia, can I take a quick stab at this
1: one? Of course.
4: I think it's a really very important question. It's easy to rest on the point that uh, modern slavery is illegal at all times in all places under international law. In fact, the the freedom from slavery is uh, one of the rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that every country in the world supports. Uh, and there's a force to that argument that we shouldn't allow informal practices or uh, or norms to dilute the effectiveness of of those rights internationally but i think as a matter of operational practice it's true that other arrows are needed in the quiver to win that argument to win over the officials on the other side of the table uh, in these discussions. And what we're trying to do with uh, the Developing Freedom Report is offer some instrumental approaches. So saying whatever you may think of the practices that we understand to be abhorrent forms of modern slavery, there are other reasons not to continue with those practices. And those reasons are very simply stated. We will all be better off if we remove those practices. We can show that economically everybody is better off if you do away with slavery because slavery, for one thing, depresses the wages even of quote unquote free workers That's, in in fact, the argument that won working men and women in Britain to the side of abolitionism in the early 19th century and that led to the end of slavery as an institution, not just the slave trade but slavery as an institution in the British Empire, that their wages, free men and women's wages, were being undercut by slave wages in the Caribbean and elsewhere. We know that historically. So there is an a practical instrumental argument here for engaging with uh, countries, with workers on that narrow economic basis. But I'm yet to find a country that openly defends the practice of one person acting as if they own another, which at its root is the recognised definition of modern slavery. Most of the arguments, when you drill down to it, have to do with vested economic interests and stakes. In the long term, we may all be better off by abolishing slavery, but in the short term, somebody is going to lose out. Somebody is benefiting from the rent-taking system that we call modern slavery, and it's making them rich and quite possibly powerful, because often there are links between the organizers of modern slavery and political interests. So we have to recognize that these interventions are not purely mechanical. They are small p political in that sense. They are going to disrupt the status quo that is benefiting somebody uh, at the expense of everybody. Modern slavery allows traffickers and businesses that rely upon it to privatize the profits and socialise the costs. And that is something we really need to reverse.
1: Thanks, James, and a a series of powerful kind of interest-based strategies and arguments there. So I just wanted to ask whether anyone had any final comments or messages to make before we finish up?
4: I think the one, one final thing I would say comes back to actually something Mark said at the beginning, that in a way the risk exposure of development finance institutions is not necessarily uh, unique uh, in the the market. Modern slavery is present all around the world. And as we see a growing collaboration between public and private finance, including to achieve sustainable development goals and broader ESG objectives, uh, their risk exposures are going to become not only quite similar in profile, but intertwined. So for anyone who's listening uh, to this working within a, a private sector finance institution. Please don't take from this that the that you're insulated from these challenges simply because you're not part of the public sector. Uh, in fact, the opposite, I would say, is true.
2: And, and can I um, follow up on that with something that always gets me in hot water with my media and comms team? Um, but if you haven't found it and you're a financial institution you haven't found modern slavery, you're probably not looking hard enough because it is there. It's got to be. By dint of statistics, it is on your book. And when you do find it, don't run away. That's the worst thing you can do. Try and figure out what smart people in your institution can do, whether it's AML or ESG or whomever, to um, assess and mitigate those, uh, those circumstances for people who are in you know, very, very unpleasant situations. And that may mean thinking about microfinance, that may mean thinking about credit solutions to people you bring out of slavery. There are lots of really smart innovations going on across DFIs and commercial institutions. And I think it behooves all of us to, to think laterally about how we can be a bigger agent in uh, solutions.
1: Thanks, Mark, and I think that's a really good point to end on and something we've really tried to stress in our report as well. Ignorance is, is no longer a line of defence. Modern slavery um, is so prevalent, and it's a matter of looking closely enough. Um, so James, Mark and John, i to say thank you so much to all three of you for joining us on this podcast today. I've really enjoyed our discussion, and uh, I think you've raised some fascinating points and shared some some really valuable insights. So thank you for that. Um, and I think the conversation has been really relevant to development finance institutions, but not only. And this comes back to a point you made at the very start, Mark, that this is a problem that concerns, you know, the whole financial sector so let's try and collectively get your message across to as many people as we can both in dfis but also across the broader financial services industry and to our listeners thank you all for tuning in and have a nice day thank you for listening and i hope you've found this to be an informative and valuable podcast quick shout out if i may a core theme of our public private research project has been to drive an industry-wide response and so we are keen to speak to as many financial institutions as possible so that we can understand current and best practices. Whether you work for a bank or building society, an investment fund or an insurance house, an accountancy firm or a money services business or indeed any other financial institution, we would be delighted to hear from you. If you would like to either participate in or sponsor this research, please do get in touch. We would love to talk to you and your team about what you are currently doing to either detect or prevent any links to modern slavery and human trafficking. You can find out more via our research website, www.crime.financial.com forward msht.
0: Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.